0: Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, social, and cultural implications of life in diaspora. We are your hosts, Zach Smirn And Ben
1: Yanowitz. In this episode, we spoke with four founders and contributors of Compass Media, a Russian-language activist media collective based in Israel, Palestine.
0: Our guests simultaneously come from two diasporas, which are both in deep crisis, yet they maintain principled leftist and anti-imperialist politics. This stands in stark contrast, with how the Russian-speaking community in Israel is generally portrayed.
1: Through their life experiences and family histories, we explored how cultural identity, migration, transnationalism, and geopolitics have interacted in this current historical moment for individuals from traditional Ashkenazi homelands.
0: Two years after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and amidst ongoing genocidal violence in Gaza, we hope that this conversation will highlight the voices and strategies of organizers who are risking a lot in their actions take care guys.
1: Thank you so much to our new patrons. Every dollar, euro, pound helps us to continue producing this podcast and doing this work. If you aren't yet a supporter, we hope you consider becoming a monthly donor to help us become financially sustainable
0: by the end of this first year.
1: Link is in the description.
0: We hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: Compass Media. I'm just going to call you all that collectively. It's really such a pleasure to have you guys. I met several of you while I was in Palestine in May with the Center for Jewish Nonviolence's delegation. But you guys were there kind of as just people living in, I believe most of you were around Tel Aviv at the time or within 48. And it was really exciting to meet you guys because you were a bunch of Eastern European Jewish activists who were standing in solidarity with Palestinians and living in, not necessarily as Israelis, but as Jews in this land fighting for a better world, a world where all people can live in peace and justice between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And it was really exciting to be there with you guys because just about a month beforehand, I was in Poland with Zach, and it was really meaningful to be able to recognize our Eastern European Jewish roots and how those can actually be present within our activism as Jews caring for building a better world. And being in Palestine is very difficult as Jews because you are surrounded by a Jewish supremacist state that has a completely different conception of what it means to be Jewish. And then you guys are here who have much more lived roots of what it means to be Jewish to you guys in that more Yiddish land context, I think if you don't mind me using that word. I know you guys speak Russian predominantly as you guys have started Compass Media, which is a Russian language media collective, which is really exciting to us as diasporists because we're really interested in the multilingual nature and the fact that as Jews, we are an international people. And you guys being there in Palestine and using the language that you speak in your activism is really internationalist and cosmopolitan in a way that just challenges a lot of assumptions about what it means to be a Jew in that land that you are currently living. So to get started, could you each tell us a little bit about yourselves and where you come from and your relationship to the land that you're currently living on or the state you're living in?
2: Okay, who wants to start? You go. okay yes my, my name is Andre and I publish under Andre X and I I grew up in Russia and then moved around a bit I lived in the UK for a while and came back to Russia thinking that I was going to stay. But then I went on holiday to Tel Aviv to see my grandparents for a couple of weeks, and they were here at the time. Back then, I didn't really understand anything that's happening in this land. But on the day that I was supposed to fly back, Russia invaded Ukraine. So instead of going back, I applied for citizenship. So for the past two years, I've lived here. Once it became clear that I basically I have to stay here in order to not get drafted, in order to not get arrested for the stuff that I write and for the stuff that I do. I decided to try to find out as much as possible about the the, the place where I, where I now live. And my journey into my political position now began in Netanya, where I was speaking to a realtor. And she told me, you know, Netanya is a, um, it's a really nice place to live. It's a very good place to rent an apartment because the mayor here doesn't let Arabs rent apartments. And that made me question everything about this place. And then I was speaking to Israelis, to Palestinians, to Jews, to soldiers, to rabbis, to everyone. And over the course of the next year, I guess, I realized a lot of new stuff about this place, uh, which has led me to activism and to the work that I do now.
3: Uh, my name is Roman. I am uh, born in Ukraine. And when I was three years old, my family immigrated to Israel. I was lived in Batyan. My first school was conservative school. And um, like how I become questioning what's happening here like uh, my family it's like jewish in ukraine that afraid of the state so they bring this afraidness from the state to here but here like my mother afraid of the israeli state and also the state uh, also was discriminating me because i'm russian speaking like you are not jewish you are russian even that i'm from ukraine your family not fought for this uh, uh, this country what you're doing here go back to russia and uh, all the things like it like uh, also from the teachers so it's maybe not was so hard to question in this state because this state never was mine state uh, like it stayed over it was uh, pushing me away so when i started to read about what's happening here i also remember that it's also was a kind of questioning about identification, because in uh, Ukraine, like, I'm not, like, title nation of Slavic Ukrainians, like, it's not national minority. And here also, like, you're not Israeli. So the answer comes that you got to break the wall instead of standing on the right side. So I was here and there three months in the army, and also in this time, I'm really questioning what uh, happened here, because I... In the army and uh, choose to refuse by political meanings, go to prison, something like it. And after it, I'm in activism. Just minutes.
0: Just minutes.
4: You can go next. Um, my name is Rivka. I grew up in St. Petersburg. I grew up in a religious family. I, I was in a Jewish community, which was uh, very small during that time because, like in Soviet Union, religious. Being religious wasn't really allowed, and uh, my parents say, like, which means they became religious uh, when they were grown-ups. It was, like, a big part of my identity, like, their story, and the story of so how it wasn't allowed to, you know, to do Shabbat and everything. Mm-hmm. And... Also, I've experienced like a lot of anti-Semitism since I was visibly Jewish and it was really hard to be religious there because uh, nothing works for you. And when I was 15, I was like, okay, I hate this country and this country hates me. So I don't want to be here. And then I've met some Zionists and it was amazing because they told me that there's a place where I can go and it will be my home. Everybody is more like me and uh, there's like freedom and actual democracy and not like the Putin state and everything and I was like wow that sounds amazing I want to come and uh, then I came and after a while I was like okay there's actually like not only Jewish people here and everyone says they're terrorists but I never heard their point of view and at the same time, there the started the war in Ukraine in uh, 2014, and there was Maidan, so I started more reading on the left-wing uh, politics and stuff like that. And uh, I started to question a lot of the things that was told me. And uh, this time I was like, okay, I see there's something very wrong here, but I don't know what's going on because most of the information, it was all in English or in Hebrew, and I didn't really read in both of those languages and i think it's one of the reasons that i really wanted to do something like compass because it's kind of to talk to my younger self and uh, give her the information that she was wanted and uh, this time i've i did uh, read the information in the end and i became an activist yeah (laughs)
5: um i like that all of us like represent like a little bit of a different point in our Aliyah's history, Aliyah meaning like migration. So my family immigrated to Israel in the early 90s, like in 1990. And the Soviet immigration to Israel was the largest immigration in in this country's history, like demographically. And so I grew up in the shadow of that in Canada. So my parents left here after I was born, around the second intifada. A lot of like my understanding of this place and migration and conflict kind of come from like living in the shadow of that. And so, you know, having family who lived here for 10 years, went through the assimilation process. My sister served in the army. On one hand, felt very at home in this place, but also experienced a lot of what Roma uh, explained of like the rejection and Israeli culture can be very assimilationist, which a lot of different Jewish people that live here can talk about that from their experience and the loss of their roots and cultures. And, you know, that has a very specific impact on Russian speaking people who live here, but that's like its own whole topic. But anyways, when my family left, and a lot of Russian-speaking Jews left at a certain point, it was because we were critical. My mom was very critical of the occupation. She didn't necessarily have like the language to talk about it in those words, but she knew there was a lot of racism here. She didn't want my brother and I to serve in the army. And so I had the very like anti-Zionist political awakening from a very, very young age because I also grew up with a very conservative North American community that had a very idealistic, very Zionist, very ideological understanding of Israel. And as someone who came from Israel, I had the wherewithal from a very young age to be like, all these things that you're saying, all this brainwashing you're doing to literal children It's wrong. I remember being like a first grader and they put us in a room with a rabbi and he gave us like a map of the Middle East and he pointed to all these countries around us. And he was like, these are all your enemies. And I just remember sitting there thinking, like, first of all, you have no idea like where we just came from, like living in an environment where my family like talked about, you know, having immigrated in the middle of the Gulf War, living through the First Intifada in the wake of the Second Intifada, having immigrated to Israel in the middle of the assassination of the Romanian Ceausescu and very detached North American community, just like imagining this whole thing. So I grew up very isolated and very alienated from both Israelis when I would come back here because I wasn't in the bubble, completely detached from North American Jews because I wasn't in their bubble. And so as a result, I just clung very hard to my Soviet identity, like a Soviet Jewish identity, which just felt like very natural. And then would always travel back and forth here and naturally got involved in some kind of leftist scene here.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Before we move on, can you say your name? I think we missed that. Sorry, Um, Mayor. (laughs) No, thank you so much for all the introductions we just got. I think it's really important to understand just how much diversity you have within your own collective. I think it's really interesting to understand the different positions across the Jewish diaspora you're coming from, and how you're coming together in Palestine-Israel, I think is really interesting. I think the point about The pressures towards assimilation is actually quite important because in diaspora, one of the big political issues, one might say, especially going in like the 90s, this was a big thing. Like there was a lot of anxiety over the question of assimilation and whether like Judaism and Jewishness could survive as more and more Jews intermarried or just became assimilated into the countries they lived and maybe abandoned any Jewish identity. And that hasn't really happened. But I think it's really interesting to see the flip side of that where In Israel-Palestine, you do have pressures to assimilate into a Hebrew-speaking or Sabra Israeli identity. And that actually has historically played a huge role in actually undermining the vitality of diaspora Jewish cultures. There was an article that I found really important in the foreword, which has some questionable takes recently in authors. But there was an article that was about how Yiddish became a foreign language in Israel, despite being spoken continuously since the 1400s. And I thought it was like really important to recognize that there is so many different experiences and points across the Jewish diaspora that people have come from in that land, and yet they're basically forced and pressured to abandon these different cultural identities and languages in favor of a nationalistic identity. And that has a really dangerous and negative effect on the diversity of Jewish culture and what it means to be Jewish, and basically abandons what it has meant to be Jewish, which is something that's very different in favor of nationalism that I think loses a lot of what made Judaism like a unique peoplehood or conception of cultural roots. And as diasporists, uh, just to give like a quick definition of diasporism, we've been trying to come up with like a dictionary definition because there is none and we think it's important to have an understanding of what diasporism is on its own without any adjectives, whether Jewish diasporism or socialist diasporism. But we kind of understand diasporism as the affirmation of one's home in diaspora while simultaneously communally engaging with one's and developing one's cultural roots. And I think what you guys are doing is really unique and exciting to us because you are together in Israel-Palestine, but also choosing to publish your media collective entirely in Russian. And I was wondering if you could explain why you chose Russian. I think, Rivka, you spoke a little bit to it but why collectively you chose to publish exclusively in russian and also who your target audience is because that's a big question for me whether it's russian speaking jews in israel or is it the wider russian speaking world
2: there is a very very specific very simple and a very sad reason why we chose russian specifically and is that in russian there is nothing that there is nothing else there are no left wing sources if you are if you're reading sources like israeli sources they're going to be overwhelmingly right-wing. They're going to be supporting, at best, Netanyahu, or like Lieberman, and at worst, Ben And there is practically nothing else. Uh, and uh, the sources from outside Israel-Palestine, uh, they're going to be um, a mostly like liberal Zionists or Russian propaganda, and it's We are working in a desert here and there was a real need for an alternative and, well, we decided uh, to provide one. And um, as for our target audience, our main target audience is in Israel-Palestine, of course, and our goal is to shift the discourse and to provide an alternative to the predominant uh, ideas that are espoused by the 90s aliyah and to provide an alternative. But at the same time, obviously, the Russian-speaking world is large and there are a lot of people living across the world. important to speak to them as well and we're uniquely situated as we're speaking in russia and we're on the ground we are right here and we're we're able to do something that unfortunately nobody else is doing yet anybody else wants to add something
3: it's pretty uh, the same that andre said and also that rivka said before like there is no information in in russia i've uh, like collected information by pieces like even When I was in the army and I knew that there is discrimination against Palestinians and don't have any right, I have nothing you heard about Nagba. Like there's not teaching really about it in the schools, what happened in Gaza, that most of them are refuges about. There's uh, nowhere you can get this information in uh, Russian language, only in uh, English, only in uh, Hebrew. That's it.
0: Anything to add or not for now?
4: I think I've uh, already said with my stories. it's for me, it's kind of personal in a way that I've been that person that really wanted to read something like that. So I've decided to be the person that provides it, caring for your inner child. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it just reminds (laughs) me of
1: this quote that essentially is be the person your childhood self needed. And I think that's just really important because especially when we think about the pressures towards assimilation, I think it's really important to have those sources in the language you speak. And I just wanted to kind of add additional little small question because I was curious. Could you guys say a little bit about like the actual experience of the assimilatory pressures within Israel and like the way Russian language is treated? I know you spoke a little bit about it. Are you basically seen as like outsiders in Israel, despite you also speaking Hebrew and being part of the society?
5: I mean, Russian has a very specific reputation. In Israel, and I'll say in Israel as in, like, in Israeli society as opposed to Palestinian society, although the two are very mixed, but the Russian-speaking Aliyah has somewhat of a reputation of being quite insular, and we've done a relatively good job of maintaining our language to the point where, you know, you can go to places like Batyam or Beersheba, and you can... Manage just fine without speaking a lick of Hebrew because of how many Russian speakers are all, all around. There's shops with Russian, kind of by virtue of how many Russian speaking people have immigrated here over the years, starting in the 90s, over a million people came here. And also because, I don't know, I think maybe we're quite stubborn. Like we didn't have Russian beaten out of us the same way that Arabic speakers had arabic shamed out of them they were from moroccan or iraqi or a different migration do you want to say something about yes.
3: this first i've extremely experienced this discrimination like for most of the years when i was in the school uh, like you got to speak hebrew like hebrew is a state language you got to speak it russian no russian speak maybe at home or maybe in some other place and through all of my childhood, I've heard about person that are ashamed of speaking Russian. Like it was like, or you get into this culture and you starting to be like everyone and you speak in Hebrew or you outsider. So there was a pretty much, I remember, groups of Russian speaking that was just not speaking with everybody else. So you pretty much have two ways in Israel, or you get completely assimilated, and I have friends that completely assimilated. They little bit know Russian, and speak uh, with it in whole, but all the, like, mimic with everything, with phrase, with uh, behavior, behavior that become, like, uh, where they grow. So if the person grow with Ashkenazis, he mostly will be like Ashkenazis. If he was, like, with Arabic Jews, so he will be mostly like Arabic Jews. And also, I think, by political uses, so also... Christians you every time the people just afraid to have the Christ because people was a on them. also they every time question you and you're not going maybe maybe you're going.
0: That that reminds me of the um, advertisement that Shas, the political party, did a few years ago with the facts about conversion. I'm not sure if people remember here exactly. This was about six or seven years ago. There was basically mocking the lack or supposed lack of Jewishness of Russian immigrants. So I wanted to ask about this. This has been touched on already about the reputation of uh, Russian-speaking Jews in Israel being right-wing And it's associated most commonly, we think of the Russian Speaker's Party in Israel as being uh, Israel Beiteinu, or if not, we associate with politicians, you know, apart from uh, Lieberman, there's also uh, Yuli Edelstein or Nathan Sharansky, one of the most famous refuseniks. It's my understanding that when it came to emigration from the Soviet Union... The emigration that was able to take place to a limited extent in the 1970s to Israel was more ideological, whilst in the later 1980s and 1990s, it was more pragmatic and considered more to be connected with the collapse of the Soviet Union and Israel being a convenient place to get out, and that emigration being larger in size. That being said, why, why do you think that specifically the, the Russian community has this reputation? And do you think that there are steps, even outside of the question of Israel-Palestine, as impossible as that seems of all times now, is there the possibility of an organized, strong left-wing current within Russians, Russian Jews, Russian non-Jews, however they may choose to identify in Israel? And how do you think that can happen in the near to mid-future?
3: Okay, uh, first, uh, why uh, Russian really right-wings, like Russian Jews? I think not only Russian Jews, all the post-Soviet world—it's now really Eurocentric. Uh, one of the most Eurocentric uh, places in the world, I say. And it's uh, really important, even not right, but Eurocentric, because a lot of people will uh, support all what the uh, U.S. did in the Cold War just because they against the Soviet Union because they heard for them from the childhood. U.S. And everything that close to US it's freedom and the Soviet Union it's prison. So they've just not questioned indeed that it can be not only black and white and it can be something other it. And it's like mirror of that there is no as what we say before, there is pretty much nothing um non-marginal that uh, will speak to the millions of people. There is all Russian propaganda pro power and so. Empire propaganda or uh, liberal propaganda that will be Eurocentric. So uh, and also the thing why I should also think that we work in not only uh, on the com- community Russian speaking inside Israel of Palestine because the Russian speaking here. It's a nine channel and the television and all the right wing channels, it's on the part of where they get in their information, like they're getting information from the Russian speaking blogger, liberals uh, from Russia. So it's like it, it's none uh, really separate informational space uh, like uh, I don't know Hebrew So it's all connected with it. Informational world are really really globalizing uh, in all over the world. The left wings, I think, grow, and also in Russian-speaking community. Like here and now, really more Russian-speaking leftists than was before. Also because of the dictator in Russia, on the war that was in Russia, the people get more political. And now I think we are collecting Pieces like of these people that left wings to take them to the activism to make more Russian speaking uh, left front.
4: Also, I wanted to add to this that for a lot of Russian speaking people, it's very triggering, yeah, like to hear a word like Marx and communism, socialism. For example, like I see it really on my parents my mom that when i'm saying to her some i remember when i told her you know i would like to live in a commune she was like terrified (laughs) it's like more but if even if i would tell her that i want to marry a guy or something i don't know because like uh, she was really traumatized by this whole system that really is a prison like it was a prison she told me all the time how they made them learn uh, all the things that Lenin said and he said and like all the party meetings and uh, how it was terribly boring and she hated it. And it was the worst thing ever. And I think she's like an example of this huge trauma. It's challenging because of it. (laughs) But uh, I think also this trauma, it brings another perspective on the left because we see how it can go wrong.
0: Do you think that there is a possibility in the near to mid-future of there being a shift in terms of at least the outside perception, but the organisation of the Russian-speaking left in Israel and also connecting it towards Russian-speaking leftists in Russia and around the world?
5: There has to be a shift. And that shift is first and foremost driven by the people that are willing to talk about it, willing to make media about it. And kind of like Rivka said, people are... I think there is like people who are a little bit afraid to talk about it. I mean, there is there is definitely a huge art scene, especially in Israel, like people who talk about migration and, and the impacts of leaving, whether it was the Soviet Union or more recently Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. I think art has predominantly been our domain of expressing ourselves less so than than media. But, you know, you do have to express yourself to develop your political consciousness to reorganize. It's just a very sensitive topic right now, because, you know, on one hand, you have an entire ethnic cleansing and genocide. And then on the other hand, there's this almost like kind of navel gazing. You don't want to go into that when there's something like that happening. When you're trying to talk about the occupation, and at the same time, you're trying to ask a difficult question like, well, what is our role here as people who are also displaced? I mean, when my family left, they lost their passports. It's not like I can just go back to Ukraine, and You know, that's just also not really what it's about. So you're trying to navigate both questions at the same time. And therein lies kind of the complexity of it all. And also just like a task that does need to, like it does need to be done. And I also just wanted to add, Rivka, I really resonated with your story. It reminds me of what my sister went through because suddenly you're an eight-year-old kid in Ukraine, like going to like pioneer camp wearing like a uniform writing about lenin as a child and then suddenly you're assimilating into israeli culture and basically being driven towards the idf you went from one very ideological place that literally no longer exists anymore right you're from a place that no longer exists into this country that you know also it's kind of like a, a fever dream and it's complicated
1: yeah thank you uh, Rivka, your question, as well as the points you raise, I think are very interesting and do make us very curious about your political and ideological orientation, both individually and as a collective, because when you talk about Being socialists or communists, a lot of the time people do misunderstand that and just think, oh, we mean the Soviet Union, which of course is not what Zach or I understand as socialism or communism and don't see that at all as something we want to recreate. But we have to wrestle with the fact that many people do understand that as like what communism is. But at the same time, we as diasporists are heavily inspired by the Bund. The Bund being a socialist diasporist organization that was founded in the Russian Empire at the same time as modern political Zionism at the end of the 19th century. And it's also one that isn't really tainted by these past failures and offers a strong vision of what a Jewish future could look like as part of a broader socialist transformation. So as like a group of left-wing expatriates or immigrants from the former Soviet Union, how do you understand socialism or the world that you seek to help bring about? How do you understand your own politics? as a collective and individually.
2: We we have a pretty diverse team, the editorial team. Obviously we're all left-wing, but we have different visions for the world that we want to see and for the strategies that we use to achieve it. Every time the question of leftist infighting is raised, my reaction to that is we're so far from the point of discussion of which type of a society we want to build Right now, obviously, we all strive towards a future of equality and freedom and justice. Right now, our priority number one is to stop the genocide and to prevent a fascist theocracy in this land. And we all can agree on doing that.
0: Yeah, I strongly resonate with that. I, I think sometimes yesterday I was sitting in the student union at my university, a small side note, and then on one hand, I was just close enough to hear the student radio shack, where there were about two people listening to the student radio. And then there was one of the four Trotskyist groups on uh, at university had a meeting of like seven or eight people. And I understand that there are differences between a lot of these groups, but none of us are in a position to really offer any sort of challenge or threat, and even if we're not talking about like uniting into one organization, there should at the very least be some sort of broad set of ideas that can unite us in action, at the very least. So you know, we do, we ask the question out of curiosity, not necessarily to try and sort of bait out any fighting. Although, of course, discussions and, and criticism is also something that is most welcome and, and we appreciate.
4: I, I wanted to add that, like. I agree with Andre that we have a uh, focus that we do agree on sometimes. But I think it's also one of the reasons why a lot of like leftists always fight with each other. It's not only really about uh, what you want to see in the future, it's also how you get there. And the strategy might be very different, but it's okay. I think uh, every person has an opinion of what you should do in every situation. And then you're trying to deal with it in reason.
0: So recently we saw on your Instagram posters that were exclaiming the Russian slogan, uh, Njet no to war, which is commonly associated with the anti-war movement inside uh, Russia against the Russian government's invasion of Ukraine. There's been a lot of comparisons and sort of connections that have been made between the West and quote unquote, supporting one side here, by another side there, how it relates these ideas towards, you know, military occupation, settler colonialism, population transfer, ethnic cleansing, crimes against civilians. You guys have a very different relation to these conflicts than most people that look at them. So what does that look like for you?
2: The conflicts are obviously extremely different and they have completely different contexts historically and culturally and socially. At the same time, of course, there are parallels connected to colonialism and, as you said, ethnic cleansing, occupation. Our general position in all conflicts is to be on the side of the people who are being oppressed and on the side of the people who are being colonized and occupied. At the same time, you're right. We have a very specific relationship with this conflict given that it's it's so emotionally resonant uh, for all of us. And it was definitely turning point for me and I think maybe for all of us when Russia invaded Ukraine uh, launched the full-scale invasion in 2022 it shifted my perspective a lot I went into activism significantly more because of that of course our political positions are also informed by us being from an area which is dealing with the legacy of imperialism as well as with current imperialism
5: yeah I want to say like first of all we're against war I feel like that's the most human, instinctual thing. And yet somehow we all got lost. Not all of us, obviously, but like suddenly people became warmongers. And, you know, second of all, I think we have a very intimate understanding of like what it means to be fawns in this big nationalistic project, what it means to be displaced. We left from one place to end up in another, having these huge ideological nationalistic struggles taking place in which we are forced to also take sides, certain discourses and rhetorics, and it, it shapes our life. I think the two positions are very related. And I don't know, I was in New York in like October, November or something. And someone asked me, like, my ethnicity, and I was like, oh, I'm a Ukrainian Jew. And they were like, oh, that's so controversial. And in the West, like, actually, it is controversial. And, you know, I just remember when the Ukrainian war started. I mean, first of all, like, I felt so embarrassed that the Ukrainian war was taking up so much attention compared to, like, I don't know, the Sudanese civil war or the Syrian civil war. You know what I mean? Like, the kind of racism that goes with the attention that Ukrainians get. I mean, in Canada, for example... Ukrainians got so much more migration support than Palestinians are getting now. Like, there's a cap on how many Palestinians can enter Canada, whereas I don't think there was for Ukrainians, or at least the cap was much higher. You know, there's so much racism and and bias. But at the same time, I also felt like the Ukrainian war had essentially become a joke to specifically leftists in Canada. And I just think we should all be against war ideology. And part of what I also feel attracted to as as many pro-Palestinian leftists as this, you know, utopic, idealistic image of Palestine as this, like, home of pluralism and diversity and anti-nationalism and just as I, like, long for this brotherhood of nations and the Soviet Union that didn't really exist because of, like, imperialism, you know, the idea that there can be some kind of diversity of culture and that being, like, the ultimate antidote to war and hegemony and racism which has poisoned the well of all of our struggles and our ability to live anywhere. And so, you know, I agree with Andre that our job first and foremost is to kind of study and understand, like, how do we side with the oppressed and what goes into that?
4: I just wanted to add, for me, like, it all started in 2014 when I moved to Israel and uh, Russia occupied Crimea. And it also was very inspiring to see, like, Maidan And that people actually can overthrow their government when they suck. I had a lot of friends at that time in Ukraine and I felt like they're in my mind and terrified of what's happening and inspired by what's happening. It's very connected and it formed us how we think, how we see things.
3: First, I was uh, really angry about uh, most of the left that give a lot of support every time for the Palestine, but if Ukraine was attacked by empire, so support was uh, like less uh, or none really critical view about what's happening there, that Ukraine have to have guns from the imperial West, even uh, if it's imperial. Because in other way, it just will be under the Russian occupation and the protest of the West will not really help them. Also, it's uh, make me feel more how Palestinians feel against Israelis, because like I was also volunteering in Ukraine in the winter 23 and see what people think about Russian there. It's pretty much in all the reasons what the Palestinians and why they think like it. So uh, show me isolation of uh, maybe post-Soviet or Ukrainian left because on the one side you are against uh, Russian imperialism and non-compromising against uh, Russian imperialism and on other side against uh, West imperialism.
1: No, I think it's really important to have a much more complex understanding about what it means to be against war. I think many Western leftists, but certainly American leftists, simply see imperialism as American imperialism and ignore the fact that like, yes, there is American hegemony around the world, but it's also not the only imperialist actor. As much as like I'm not a Leninist, I think in his text on imperialism, the world system that he lays out and the competing imperial factors are countries that exist in tandem with financial capital, like that's still the world we live in. There isn't one imperialism that dominates the whole world. So I was just curious if you guys had any thoughts about like the nuance needed to really understand what it really means to be calling for peace in these different contexts. For sure, definitely.
2: I think the focus there is on what the biggest threat in each particular case is. The position that I prefer to take is to counteract the threat. The current threat in the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the Russian imperialist state. And until Russia ceases to be an empire, there will not be a solution in that region and no other post-Soviet country will be safe conflicts will continue here right now the most pressing issue is the genocide against the palestinians which is happening currently and the most pressing thing is to stop that obviously there is a whole lot of things that needs to be done it's not just stop the genocide and leave everything be it's also build a sustainable future in some way in conversation with everybody who lives in israel palestine
5: if i can add on i mean I think on one hand, even just anti-war activism is so colored by its vast history and by its failures. I can't really think of any war that was ended by us taking to the streets and protesting en masse, but at the same time, like, uh, public opinion is a frontier in which war is waged. And if you lose public support, it doesn't necessarily mean that the empires decide to pull the plug, but it's certainly a very valuable and necessary step. This current war is happening in the wake of decades of of wars in the Middle East and and across the world. But it's important context. You know, I think a ceasefire is really important because primary is the genocide, like Andre said, but secondary is also the reality that we live in a fascist dictatorship and an occupation. And under this dictatorship, you have several dictatorships, including like the Palestinian authority. And I think just the very idea that you live in a place where you can't sway The fact that you live under an occupation, I mean, obviously it's a problem and people have almost given up on trying to change it because for decades, like they couldn't. It's interesting that we're having this call today because today David Cameron, the foreign minister in in the UK, he says like, oh yeah, only peace will bring security. We are seriously considering like recognizing Palestine as a state which we've been begging the world to do for decades. It's quite miserable on some level, like that at the end of the day, like these decisions get made over our heads on their own timeline. And David Cameron can just say like, oh, the past 30 years of Israel have been another failure. That's what he said. Well, how come you as a diplomat, you get to choose when that happens? It's very frustrating. Like, at what point did we have to reach for that to be the case? On the other hand, I'm very grateful for the ICJ because I can only assume that like saying that had something to do with that, that they're also just like looking at this big situation and thinking like, oh, when's a good time to pull the plug with the settlements? It's it's very complicated. All of this is very much influenced by like settlers and the ideology behind it, the settlement grabs. And so it's not just these massive weapons and bombs and AI issues that are happening in Gaza. It's also like just the fact that we live under a militarized society. I mean, the fact that Area C has been under constant land grabs, not just since the war started, but for many
4: years and so forth. I also wanted to add that I've recently saw a film about the women in Liberia, how they've stopped the war with protesting. It was very inspiring. And one of the things that uh, one of them said uh, that peace is a process. And I really love that, And I see that because even if we will have a ceasefire it doesn't mean that everything is going to be perfect we need to have a long and hard process of building a different society but we have to do that because other option is kind of genocide so like we literally need a
5: ceasefire to engage in any kind of political agreement and that's why they've been postponing it because the longer they can have this war the longer they can have it on their own terms whereas once a ceasefire happens obviously we will need to like resolve these like big questions that politicians don't want to resolve and that's what we want most of all but like we can't put the cart before the horse also
1: so like for the last several years the russian speaking world has really been almost instrumentalized by Putin's Russia as a way to justify and legitimize the imperialist aims of the Russian state. And I was wondering how you guys understand the difference between Russian as like a language community and the Russian nationalism that outsiders often associate with Russian as a, as a peoplehood.
0: Yeah, just to add on to this briefly, because we have been speaking a lot about like Russian language, Russian speaking, but obviously, you know, when it comes to like Soviet Jews, we're not just talking about Russians and Ukrainians and Belarusians. There's also, you know, Georgians, different from Central Asia, Bukharans, Kazakhs and so on. So just to sort of expand on that. Like I can speak about
3: Israeli Russian speaking and Ukrainian Russian speaking in ukraine like yes the russia used the fact that a lot of people speak russian pretty much half of state to use it to its imperialist aggression but also there is in ukraine now pretty much other thing that if you speak russian there now it's occupier language if you speak in russian you're not 100 percent patriot so if you like russian speaking musician you can't make anything uh, in Russian. I've also felt it a little bit about myself. So it's a uh, stick on the two sides, spoken in you can suffer. Double issue. Uh, in uh, Israel, uh, if it's uh, used by Russia, it's uh, in Israel, most effects have the monopoly have Zionism and not Russia. By all my experience, that's it.
2: In the, On the editorial team, we have people from Russia, from Ukraine, from Belarus, from Kyrgyzstan. And obviously the language that we use among ourselves and the language we publish in is Russian. And that is the direct result of the Russian imperialism of the past centuries. And we have obviously recognize that. And there is also nothing that we can really do about that in a meaningful way if we want to if we want to work effectively. At the same time, we we do want to address this. And when we were going to publish the paper version of Compass, which Hopefully it will come at some point after the war is over. We wanted to publish it, to create a multilingual space with Ukrainian and Belarusian and Arabic and other languages. Wow. And right now we're speaking English, which is the result of centuries of British colonialism and then American colonialism. And, well, it sucks.
1: Uh, I think it was in our third episode where we talked to, maybe it was in our 12th episode, when we talked to Bundes and Bund-inspired folk. They've made the point that like the Bund's use of Yiddish as their language of propaganda and cultural identity was not out of any political conviction. It was simply because that was the language the people were speaking. And I think that sounds very similar to what you guys are doing, where it's not like you really have any romantic attachment to Russian as a national community or anything like that. It's just simply the language you're speaking. It's your common language. It's the language that the community that you're trying to engage with is speaking. And I think there's a lot of the pragmatic reality of that. And I think it's actually important to be recognizing that and thinking about how that just how that's okay. Like it's good to be using that. And not it's not only okay, it's good that you're engaging with this because if you aren't doing this, then as you said at the very beginning of this interview, it's a desert. There is no other source for this sort of information in that language. And we have to be engaging on all fronts. And it sounds like that's what you're doing. And it's really inspiring to see that because someone needs to be doing it. And I don't have the language skills. A lot of people don't have those language skills. So it's really incredible to see that you guys are doing that and that you're doing that with people who aren't just Russians, who are Ukrainians, Belarusians, Kyrgyzstani. And I think that's really incredible. And it's interesting. I remember like the first time when I met you guys in Masafariata, I think a few of you said, like, we are the Soviet Union. In a way, that was like kind of a joke, but also like there's a truth to it in that like, there's a pan-national identity that Russian was just the common language for. And it's not that it's a nationalist identity whatsoever. It's more of just, this is the language we speak. And I think there's real beauty to using a language as a way to transcend national boundaries rather than reinforce them. Mm.
4: Yeah, it just made me think that if there wasn't any imperial empires that affected our languages, we all would speak Yiddish, but none of us speak Yiddish.
2: Okay, so the empire is good. Should we change the...
5: (laughs) Yeah, keep it. No, it's convenient. I mean, it's, it's kind of a lingua franca.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it actually reminds me of something I learned in my historical research over the last year, which is that until like the 19th, early end of the 19th century, people didn't actually know make a clear distinction between internationalism and imperialism, which I think is really kind of gross. But I think it also shows that like when we are thinking about transcending national boundaries, there is like a very dangerous political aspect of language communities. But there's also the desire to have a language that we can communicate to each other with across these national boundaries. And that is often informed by imperialism and the histories of imperialism. But it doesn't need to be tied to that when we think about the future. And I think as we think about building a new future, it's important to be engaging with these languages. And it's just really inspiring to see the work you guys are doing. And I really hope that we can um, work with that, because I think it's important for us to be speaking in all these languages to meet people where they're at.
0: On what you've just been discussing. I think it's amazing that we are able to communicate thousands of miles away in different time zones, different countries, different political realities, and yet have conversations about subjects that obviously relate to all of us. Every time that I see, you know, recently we had a dot on our podcast map that popped up in Cameroon or Costa Rica or South Africa, Egypt, Russia which I was very happy to see because I wasn't sure if Spotify and other platforms reached there. So yeah, and I think right now we have the resources to be having these conversations that would have been much, much more difficult uh, 15, 20 years ago.
1: Even five, 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, you're, you're right. And what's even better now is that with some resources, I'm quite skeptical in a lot of ways of AI in terms of creativity and art, but in the form of transcription and translation, it allows for much more inclusivity In that regard. So while people are listening to us now speak, they'll be able to see subtitles in Russian, perhaps. They won't be great, but the ones that are automatically generated, like they aren't great in Polish, but they'll be decent enough for people to get the general idea at the very least. The last question I wanted to ask uh, today, from me at least, is about the future of Jewish life and specifically Jewish progressive and radical organizing in russia ukraine belarus whichever you guys feel most comfortable speaking about just in terms of you know the understanding of russia we mentioned a bund already as like a russian tradition that exists and i think that in poland where i am located i see you know the conditions for it being able to manifest in a modern form with much much easier conditions than we have because we have you know at this point, we are a liberal democracy, so it's much more e- easier for us in terms of freedom of travel, freedom of speech, assembly, etc. The Jewish community in Russia is much smaller today, of course, because of emigration. But nevertheless, it is still quite sizable. I think it is one the seventh largest Jewish community in the world, so sixth largest diaspora Jewish community. And as far as my understanding is, you have a similar situation that you have in Poland, where you have a sort of for identifying Jewish community. And then several times that number of people that have some sort of Jewish background and ancestry that either know or don't know about it, identify with it more or less, and might identify with it more or less depending on the kind of conditions that they have. In Poland, you can see this, that uh, the Jewish community has been growing because people like that have been coming back and becoming more interested in that uh, to use a, a nice Yiddish word, since it was uh, called out, uh, turned back to their their Yiddishkeit, their Jewishness. So, with these two phenomena, both with the more mainstream communal sort of understanding of of Jewishness and the radical political side, what do you see uh, there as as the potential in the, again the near to mid future?
4: I think is we we are not there. <laughs>
2: We're not there. I wasn't, and I think everybody else besides me immigrated a while ago. My Jewish identity wasn't a big part of how I saw myself when I was there. But it only really came up when, like, People ask me, "Are you Jewish by any chance?" Before launching into an anti-Semitic tirade, which happened a few times in different places, Uh, I don't know what's up with the Jewish community in Eastern Europe right now. I feel like we can only speak to the community that we've become part of here, which is like the reverse diaspora as Eastern Europeans in the Jewish land. So called uh, Jewish land in air quotes, as opposed to the Jewish community in in European land.
1: Maybe on that, do you know if the work you're doing with Kompass is playing any role in, like, is it getting to Russian speakers in the former Soviet Union at all? Do you have any way to know that?
2: We do, and the answer to that question is yes, we have. Our audience is mostly in Israel-Palestine, but there is a sizable readership among the not very sizable readership that we have in specifically in Germany, uh, Russia, and Georgia which are the places where the most people from Russia, Ukraine and Belarus immigrated since the start of the war. Also, like I write for Russian language sources that used to be based in Russia until they were designated extremist organizations. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to bring what's an inside perspective on uh, on the war and on the political situation in Israel Palestine to to the Russian speaking I think world. that's
1: that's really important work and I think with Zach's question of like is there a future for Jewish radicalism in what was once known as Yiddish land or what we might still consider like the Yiddish speaking homeland for many many centuries I think the work you guys doing is really important because it is reaching people in these places and people from these places in a way that not a lot of people are able to with a really critical and jewish perspective and as far as the jewish element of your work i was wondering if there is more to it than just like you are jews living in a jewish supremacist state or if you guys have at all like engaged with other jewish cultural or spiritual traditions on your own or in community out of curiosity the future
2: of left-wing Jewish, nice and Buddhist.
1: uh... Or even as far as like the people you're inspired by. I know, like we mentioned, the Bund, but there's also like a rich Jewish anarchist tradition with individuals like Emma Goldman. Do you guys see your Jewishness as tied to your political radicalism?
3: i see yes, because it's uh, close to know that you're a national minority in uh, Ukraine. Uh, so for me, yes. I would not say that more of my inspiration w- was by uh, Jewish revolutionaries or by their nationality, but the fact that you're a national minority, it make you sensitivity to discrimination. For the future, I will maybe a little bit try to speak about ukrainian not only jewish but uh, democratic process of their future after the war because i've little bit was there there's a lot of discriminational speech about uh, the russian-speaking community by make between them and that they're the half of the country and the Russian aggressor make between them equality and the speech is about uh, not to giving people speak in Russian not to giving to people to sing in Russian and all the things it's uh, like in the media to Take took from them political subjectivity, took from them subjectivity in political organization, in right to speak, and uh, what it's right to speak and what it's not right to speak. And now you can speak only one thing. So in the future of democratical fights in the Ukraine, I think will be also the Jewish because they have a national minority. Like I've not seen like it's got to be some apartness of uh, Jewish left because uh, all the left, it's also for, got to be the Ukraine for Roma. Because Roma people, it's also discriminating in Ukraine, and it's all democratical fight, and also go far away from this post-Soviet trauma. Not to speak left, uh, and everything in the West is good, and uh, everything that's anti-capitalistic, it's something Putinist or anti-imperialist, and you progressor, you speak Russian, you progressor, and at the end you can speak nothing because everything is progressor, and this will be, I think, the fights in the future in the Ukraine.
4: About the Jewishness, for me, it's kind of complicated because I used to be religious, and Jewishness for me is very much connected to that. And I think recently I've kind of rediscovered Yiddish by Daniel Khan, and all the stuff that I really love. And it kind of helped me to reconnect with my Jewishness, but in a way that I like. You know, I think it's something that you get in Israel. By, by living in a huge Jewish community, that you forget that you're a Jew, that your Russian identity becomes bigger and takes much more space. The popular joke of like, Russian Israelis is that there we were Jews and now we are Russians. Like It's a struggle to, to find this identity in a way also that it won't become nationalistic, especially when... Uh, Jewishness is such a big part of because we are Jews and the anti-Semitism, we need to kill and we need to do all this terrible stuff.
5: I also just feel like we never really do we ever really resolve the so-called Jewish question.
1: Oh <laughs>
5: the Jewish problem.
1: No, I think you're onto something there. Like that's actually been a core of my own historical research of like what was the so-called Jewish question? It was essentially what is the place of Jews? in a world that was rapidly turning into a world of nation states as a diasporic people. And as diasporists, we have our own perspective that is heavily inspired by the Bund and the Austro-Marxist tradition, which was all about national cultural autonomy, which is the idea of being able to have autonomy for your cultural group, on policies such as education and heritage issues, while also being part of a wider non-nation state, essentially, whether it's a plurinational state or a state that is just not organized as a state for one national group. And, We do see national cultural autonomy as a way in which diasporic groups, and I think it's very interesting how you guys are part of the Jewish diaspora, but you're also part of the Russian-speaking diaspora. And like this is something that was designed to be so that people could choose what groups that they were a part of, while also being really fully connected to the places that they were actually living. And... This, I think, is really important when nationalism is playing a very dangerous role in reinforcing imperialism, but also thinking about how we can still, and should, frankly, engage and develop our own cultural traditions. I think it's incredibly important, the work you guys are doing, to actually really engage with the Russian-speaking community in Israel and around the world. And frankly, that is a form of national cultural autonomy, of being able to engage with the Russian language, and the Russian-speaking community in a way that is critical and maintains your own autonomy and political views while fully embracing your identities as Russian-speaking Jews wherever you live.
5: And also, like, we're part of a very rich... Russian literary tradition and literary political tradition and also that exists in every other language from and the Ukraine I was about to say I was about to say (laughs) it just so happens to be our lingua franca but there's also Ukrainian Belarusian and so forth and yeah I also just want to say I mean the Bund is also like a very specific political orientation that existed over the span of a hundred years like within that kind of span from our cultures which are thousands of years old so this kind of constant adaptation that we're going through, like being in the diaspora in a very repressive nationalistic society, like these are very temporary orientations and arrangements, and it, it's our duty to change them. I, and I don't know how how everybody else feels about this, but I just feel like I live under the weight of this trauma of the Holocaust and this trauma of like not having been able to like configure an orientation around it because there is a very specific rhetoric around the Holocaust. You know, our Jewish histories have been so flattened by our losses from migration. And that in and of itself creates this like very like heavy existential kind of difficulty of like finding out how do you even talk about it? How do you even like shed those constraints and, you know, adapt to the times that we're in now where we're all dealing with the same circumstances and migration displacement these are all very universal things war yeah i mean i think
1: when we talk about the bund many of us are inspired by certain elements of it and it's also for me personally why we've kind of are exploring diasporism as a concept because i think diaspora is such a universal phenomenon in a world of constant migration crises and climate crisis that's only going to create even more migration crises and i think it's really important for us to Explore what it means to identify with our own cultural roots in diaspora in a way that isn't saying we have to choose either our cultural identity or the place we live, but says we actually can have both of these things and work on developing our cultural identities wherever we live. And that's really, of course, deeply, deeply tied to the Jewish tradition. Like we've lived in diaspora for thousands of years. Of all the peoples, whether, I mean, the Roma, of course, I think are probably the other group that has most to say about how to maintain cultural identity wherever you live. But we feel very comfortable in diaspora. We have a tradition of developing community wherever we live and engaging with our own traditions, either through spirituality or through culture in different ways. And I did want to ask just one more question to wrap us up. As either individuals or collectives, What wider initiatives are you aware of or participating in to actually foster freedom, security, justice, and peace for all the people that live between the Jordan River and Mediterranean Sea? What work are you doing to build connections, I know you've been doing work. I met you guys in Fariata and building connections with Palestinians there. What have you guys been up to as part of the broader movement against what's going on in Israel-Palestine today?
2: We've been working with different human rights organizations in the West Bank, like All That's Left and the Jordan Valley activists and Dorot Tzedek and the Rabbis for Human Rights, and there's a bunch of them. And we've been actually taking Russian speakers to the Palestinian communities to let them see what it's like behind the wall. Here we've been working with different collectives, uh, like the Radical Bloc and the Maki and uh, different other ones uh, during protests and different actions. And uh, we've been working as well with different Russian language publications like Doxa. There have been testimonials uh, from Roma. Uh, They just published some videos that Mayer made during the pogrom in Tormosaya. We've been... Working with whoever would help us, and with whoever we feel like we can help. Mr. I'm Jin Zainas. Hadash. Hadash
3: and Dimbi.
0: Speaking of Hadash, um, I just want to say, as we're finishing off, uh, take care, guys. Um, we see what's happening with Ofer Kasif. There's been a lot of stuff that we've been hearing about, uh, you know, uh, clamping down arrests. Uh, sometimes violent arrests of anti-war activists and not just Palestinians for a change. They're used to it and the Israeli left as well. And we can see the authoritarianism of the Israeli government and against dissent. So we appreciate very much you coming on uh, and just take care of yourselves. Thank you.
2: Yeah, we're very concerned about this and members of Compass have been detained, not for activity uh related to Compass yet, but for other political activism. And yeah, it's not Russia yet. Nobody's not Russia for Jews. It's not Russia for Jews. It is Russia for Palestinians and sometimes worse.
5: But at the same time I feel like being detained is like a rite of passage here.
1: Fair. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. It's been it's been a pleasure having you guys on. I really hope we can stay in touch. The work you guys are doing is really important, and we really see a lot of alignment in the sort of work we're doing in terms of exploring these issues and really really engaging with our own cultural identities while also being extremely critical of what's going on. I think it's important to have a Jewishness that is not monopolized by Zionism and understanding what it means to be a Jew in the 21st century. I think is something that is one of the big political contestations of our time as left-wing jews and i think it's really really important that you guys are doing this work um and i really hope that we can stay in touch and work together in the future
5: yeah thank you That's for awesome. also thank giving you. us a platform for it because i think it's like so valuable that, that we get to have these cross-national transnational our conversations. pleasure
1: <laughs> genuinely our pleasure